Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Season 2, Episode 9, War in America. The outbreak of war in the United States transformed the fate of British North America. If you're looking to explain why the Confederation of British North America happened when it did, why this perennial idea that someday, probably, the colonies of British North America would join together into a single state suddenly became a more urgent priority in the 1860s, then you need look no further than the events of 1860 and 1861 in the United States. The American Civil War isn't the only reason for Canadian Confederation, far from it, but it sure helps speed up the timing and provide motivation for some of the more reluctant to finally take action. The American states had been stumbling towards conflict for at least a decade. It was a clash of both economic system and moral judgment. The economic life of the southern states centered on cotton and the slave plantations that grew it. While the American North was rapidly becoming an industrial powerhouse, developing rail and factories and commerce, the bastion of southern wealth remained the ownership of slaves. At the same time, the abolitionist movement, which argued that this horrific system of human ownership simply could not continue, grew in influence in the North. More and more, Northerners began to demand an end to the system of slavery, which so clearly contradicted the nation's founding principles and, to many, the religious beliefs. Slavery, you'll recall, had already been outlawed in the British Empire. Upper Canada's first governor, John Graves Simcoe, introduced a measure to gradually end the practice in that colony. More broadly, the British abolished the trade in slaves in 1807 and then a complete end to slavery in the empire in the 1830s. You might remember that this had been kind of something of a backdrop to our episode on the rebellions of 1837 and 1838. The British colonial office had been busy dealing with the fallout from this landmark decision and was struggling with unrest in the Caribbean and Jamaica in particular and they just wished the Canadians could manage their own affairs while the Brits dealt with more important matters. Now, as something of an aside, the decision to abolish slavery was, it should be said, historically unprecedented. Slavery has been part of most societies all through human history from ancient Greece, Rome, and China, and beyond. Slavery was a key feature of indigenous societies in North America, mostly as a result of warfare, where raiding parties would typically kill older men and take captive women and children to become members of the victorious tribe. On the West Coast, the rich peoples of the Pacific Northwest even had slaves who inherited their subservient status from generation to generation. It's probably also worth pointing out that slavery long continued after it was ended in the West, especially in Africa and the Middle East. In fact, one of the dark ironies of history is that some European powers used the premise of abolishing slavery in Africa as a pretext to carve out imperial possessions on that continent at the end of the 19th century. Saudi Arabia didn't abolish slavery until 1962. To this very day, in fact, millions of people, mostly in Asia and Africa, are stuck in forced labor arrangements that look an awful lot like slavery. All of this takes us far afield, 
but it's useful context to understand how historically novel was the idea to abolish slavery in the British Empire at the end of the 18th and early 19th century. The United States, though, was, at least within the English-speaking world, rather late to the game, and many American abolitionists knew it. As the American nation spread westward in the 1840s and 1850s, expansionists took the fight about slavery to the periphery, debating whether the new western states would be slave states or free states. It mattered to the overall balance of power in the American Union. In November of 1860, American voters brought all of these debates to a crescendo when they sent Abraham Lincoln, representative of the new anti-slavery Republican Party, to the White House. Even before Lincoln can take office, South Carolina announced that it was seceding from the Union. Other states followed, and by early 1861, two vast political behemoths faced off against each other. One, the United States of America, and the other, the new political entity created by the slave states, the Confederate States of America. War officially broke out in April of 1861 when a Confederate army attacked the Union forces at Fort Sumter. The next four years would see a bloodbath of industrial proportions. And although it might now seem obvious that the North was destined to win with its superior numbers and industrial capacity, to say nothing of its pure anti-slavery moral reasoning, this was not at all clear to everyone at the time. What was clear to British North Americans at any rate, was that life was going to be a little tricky so long as war lasted, and maybe even worse after the war ended. What would happen, for instance, if a victorious North opted to put its battle-ready, mobilized forces to the task of international expansion? You know, by finally ending the pesky British presence in North America once and for all. This was, of course, all speculation but it was speculation more than a few armchair generals were making on both sides of the border. Heck, it might have even come before the end of the Civil War. More than a few outsiders fretted that some incident might lead to war with Britain early, some unfortunate mishap, a silly brazen action by an angry American or Confederate officer, or arrogant slip by a British sea captain. It might just spark a conflagration that would push the American conflict northward and bring Britain and British North America into the war. The Confederacy desperately wanted this to happen, to gain a strong ally. As we're going to see, this remained a possibility for quite some time, and there was more than one situation which threatened to do just this. The first and possibly most significant, occurred in November of 1861, only a few months after the start of the war. But before we get to this moment of diplomatic danger on the high seas, we need to briefly catch up on what had happened on the Canadian scene since the Prince of Wales sailed back home the previous year. Well, actually we need to go back a bit further to 1859 because last week I completely neglected to tell you about the Great Reform Convention of 1859, and no history of Confederation is complete without an account of that event. It all centered, of course, on the idea of federation. Even as Americans were debating the problems of their union, 
reformers too were obsessed with the injustices of the Canadian Union and the problem, as they saw it, of the underrepresentation of upper Canadian votes and interests. The trick was how to solve this imbalance. Brown had been, and continued to be, a believer in the idea of representation by population. Just make representation in the assembly dependent on the number of local electors and the problem would solve itself. Upper Canada with its larger population would get its due. But he knew better than most that these ideas did not sell well in Lower Canada. Brown's response in 1859 was to try a different approach. And so he and his supporters organized a great convention of Upper Canadian reformers for the end of that year where he sought to convince his party that another solution was possible. Federalism. If Upper Canada could not achieve what it wanted immediately via rap by pop, then maybe they could get what they wanted and convince lower Canadians that they too could preserve their independence in a federal system. This could be a federalism of just the Canadas with one general government and then two local governments, or it could be a federalism of a, a wider British North American Union, exactly the kind of thing that Alexander Galt had gone into the Macdonald and Cartier ministry to sell. In 1859, after the debacle of the previous year's double shuffle incident, this was not necessarily an easy sell to reformers. Many had been so angered by the Governor General's mistreatment of Brown and their side that they were tempted to throw away the British parliamentary system altogether and push for more American-style Republican options. And then there was the group of reformers, small but still influential, from the eastern part of Upper Canada who centered around John Sandfield Macdonald. They were committed to the Union as it was and thought that reformers just needed to embrace the double majority concept, that is, allowing for majorities from each section to govern those issues that related to each. But at the Great Convention, Brown maneuvered his way around these groups and managed to get the often divisive and capricious reformers to agree to a federal solution to the Canadian problem. It was both a huge triumph and, well, kind of, in the short term, meaningless. This is because when the convention ended and Brown came back to Parliament in 1860, his ideas went nowhere. Brown introduced a series of proposals into Parliament calling for a federal solution. And while they instigated an interesting debate, they garnered almost no support other than from reformers. Confederation remained, for the moment at least, a party measure. But still, you can see that something was brewing. Different actors at different times had proposed federalism as a solution to the Canadian problem. The fact that the idea kept getting mooted would matter, desensitizing the political scene to the idea, making it seem more like a real possibility, even if not yet. With the failure of the federalism option, though, the reformers turned back to their perennial topic, representation by population. Rep by Pop took on an even larger significance in 1861 because that year was to see the next installment in the decennial census, the counting of every Canadian from Gas Bay to Windsor and all places in between. The last census in 1851 had shown a surging upper Canadian population. In 1861, 
reformers were certain that the imbalance would be even greater, making for an even more powerful case for rep by pop. The Globe ran stories urging Canadians to make sure that they greeted their census taker and got their names on the list. It was kind of like a, a civil rights era voter registration in the United States, but in this case, pushing upper Canadian power. In 1861, when Brown again introduced a motion into Parliament calling for representation by population, his motion again went down to defeat. But this time, the votes for Rep. by Pop included not a few conservative members who, on other issues, supported the government. The ground was shifting on this democratic but still divisive issue. Even if you felt that the union itself needed to be balanced 50-50 between Upper and Lower Canada to balance English and French, you still might want Rep. by Pop in Upper Canada itself. After all, the representation in the Canadian Parliament was now skewed for Upper Canada itself, with the older settlements in the East now being overrepresented compared to the newer and more populous West. Perhaps the only good thing for Cartier and Macdonald was that the vote on Brown's rep by pop was not a vote against the ministry. Members could vote as they wished without fearing the government would fall. The Assembly voted down the Rep. by Pop motion with unanimous opposition from Lower Canada. But the results showed how the tide was turning. If Macdonald wanted to keep his members on side, he was realizing that he needed to assuage his supporters, that his own views were softening on the issue. The problem was that even as support grew in Upper Canada, resistance hardened in Lower Canada. For Lower Canadians, it was a matter of national survival. They feared that a Canada dominated by Upper Canadian votes, however democratically selected, would refuse them the kinds of institutional supports that mattered, religious schooling and institutions most especially. In fact, these problems caused serious problems for reformers in their hopes to unite across the Lower Canada-Upper Canada divide. The Lower Canadian leader, Dorian, wrote to George Brown, declining Brown's plan for a united reform coalition. It was all about Rep. by Pop. As Dorian put it, quote, The great and perhaps only difficulty in the way of a united reform party, he wrote, is the question of representation. There is no party in Lower Canada who, while in opposition, could attempt to submit a proposition or agree to a plan for the settlement of this question on a basis which would meet the view of the upper Canadian majority without completely destroying itself as a party. It's not as if there weren't other matters of interest to Canadians in 1860 and 1861, but Rep. by Pop had become, for reformers, a necessity and, for most lower Canadians, an impossibility. Even as the Southern soldiers fired the first shots of the American Civil War at Fort Sumter in April of 1861, Canadian assemblymen were in the midst of debating the nature of their own union and the issue of representation by population. That year, 1861, was an election year in the Canadas, and it proved inadvertently to be more important than many at the time realized. On the surface, not much seemed to have changed. The Cartier-McDonald government yet again won the support of a majority of seats in Parliament. 
they were showing that the, the new liberal conservative coalition that had, been re that had replaced the old reform coalition had staying power. This time, the liberal conservatives even won a majority of seats in Upper Canada. But the election was significant in a couple of respects. For one, the results did not nearly represent as strong a victory for Cartier and Macdonald as it might have seemed. As the vote on Rep by Pop earlier that year had shown, the government was in fact divided and the growing support in Upper Canada for Rep by Pop was, under the surface, going to represent the same problem for the government as it did for reform. That is, it was going to make coalitions across the Upper Lower Canadian Divide a very difficult matter, given how much Lower Canadian opinion had hardened against Rep by Pop. The government majority, as we will see, was not stable. In part, the election victory came because of how disorganized and divisive the Reform Party was in 1861, between Upper and Lower Canada certainly, but also within Upper Canada. The eastern group of reformers around John Sandfield Macdonald grew in strength in the election, with their more conservative, pro-Canadian Union ideas. And then there had been the debacle of the radical clear grit William McDougall, who had brought the old disloyalty badge of shame back on reform. In the midst of the debate over Rep by Pop, he had gone into full reformer Republican mode, warning of how Upper Canada was oppressed by what he called a foreign race, by which he meant French Catholics. He said that the Anglo-Saxon race might be forced to look elsewhere. If they could not get justice in the current union, he said, they would resort to some other plan. There were relations of an intimate kind with people on the other side of the border, and it was natural to suppose that they, Upper Canadians, Anglo-Saxons, would look in that direction for the remedy that they were unable to obtain elsewhere. If this seemed too oblique, then he made things clear by specifically mentioning the Annexationist Manifesto, the Rebellion of 1837, and directly said that Upper Canadians, if denied justice here, would have no alternative but to look to Washington. This was candy to Cartier and Macdonald. Although McDougall walked back the comments saying he was only pointing out a possible outcome, one he himself feared it was too late. Once again, the government could say in the election that reformers had shown their Yankee-loving side and could not be trusted. So yes, reformers had screwed up and the 1861 election went against them. And as Dorian had told Brown, with Rep by Pop such a, a major issue, it wasn't likely that their erstwhile lower Canadian friends could imagine joining with them in a government. But these same divisions were going to plague the government too. The 1861 election also mattered in one more way that wasn't at all obvious at the time. It mattered because George Brown lost his seat. That's right, the great reform leader, the voice of Upper Canada, failed to get back into Parliament. The reality was that Brown had been sick and he'd spent much of 1861 bedridden, unable to muster the energy to get on his feet. Although he was up and about by the summer, he lacked his usual energy. Then there was the fact that his grandstanding on religious issues created a network of local Catholics who had organized against him, 
as well as Methodists who are upset about university matters. Now, this is an issue, issue which is really interesting, but I just haven't had time to get into this perennial fight about the divide between churches and state-funded universities. In his own campaigning, Brown was forced off the stage at one local event when a brawl erupted. Someone in the crowd even beat him over the head with a club, and only luck had it that his top hat took most of the blow. The loss of 1861, though, in retrospect, was to be incredibly significant for Brown personally, and some historians argue for Canada more generally. Brown licked his wounds and did not immediately seek another seat in Parliament. Others took up the mantle of reform leadership. Brown instead decided to take a trip back to the old country, to Britain and to Scotland in particular. He was going to discover something on that trip, or rather someone, who would change his life. That's right, the middle-aged bachelor George Brown was about to find the love of his life. And I mention this here because some historians now say this actually mattered, not just privately, but also because it changed the reform leader in a way that eventually made him more open to making the huge concession that made Canadian Confederation possible. All of that is a for a future episode, but it depended upon Brown losing in 1861 and lose he did. But we need to walk back from Brown's love life and focus on the issue with which I began the show, the matter of the American Civil War and its looming presence over the affairs of British North America. In early November 1861, an American naval officer commanding a Union ship almost gave the South what they so desperately wanted, a British ally. The captain of the USS San Jacinto had heard that two southern men had been made ambassadors for the Confederacy and had boarded the British mail ship Trent and were at that moment sailing to Europe to represent the South in Britain and France. The Union captain intercepted the Trent with a show of cannon, forcing her to be boarded. The Unionists then took the Southerners and their secretaries back to Boston, where the local authorities put the men in jail. From the moment the news arrived in British North America in mid-November, the whole scene changed. How would Britain react? Would Britain see the boarding of one of its ships as a sufficiently offensive diplomatic insult, enough to provoke her into outright war? After the outbreak of American hostilities, the British government had declared its neutrality, having no interest in getting involved in yet another conflict with its former American colony. But even in declaring neutrality, the British offended the Northerners. For to be neutral, they had to somewhat recognize the South diplomatically. And the North took this as an insult, of course, because to them, the South was merely a rebellious splinter faction within what was supposed to be the United States of America. The always testy relations between Britain and the North were on edge and primed for just such an event as what would soon be called the Trent Crisis. In England, the British reacted angrily to what they saw as an act of piracy and an affront to the freedom of the seas. They dispatched a statement to the northern government demanding both an apology and the release of the southern captives. What's more, they made it an ultimatum. It had to be done by December 26th of 1861. 
To put muscle behind this threat, the British immediately ordered the largest maneuver of troops to British North America since 1814. More than 14,000 soldiers sailed for the Americas, two whole battalions plus engineers and artillery. British North America hadn't even waited for news from London before it too readied itself for a possible war. In the Canadas, the government called up existing militia battalions and, inundated with loyal volunteers, began to create new units as well. They put in orders for 100,000 uniforms from the United Kingdom. In town and cities across the colony, militia units drilled in public squares. The government created a new ministerial post for militia affairs, and John A. Macdonald became its minister, essentially a minister for war. The crisis seemed to unite British North Americans. After all of the talk of possible annexation and internal divisions in the face of an external threat, unity triumphed, at least for the moment. The Irish orator extraordinaire Darcy McGee offered to form a regiment of loyal Irish militia. When secret Fenian agitators threatened to disrupt the meeting, trying to make it seem as if the Irish community was divided, McGee asked for a division in the large meeting as to who supported the cause, and the whole room moved to one side, the small number of agitators forced to move along with everyone else. This wouldn't be the end of the problem in the Irish community, and we are going to come back to the Fenians later. But at least in November and December of 1861, British North America stood united, if fearful, to defend itself against northern aggression. In early December, British troop ships began to arrive at Rivière du Loup, the western terminus of the Grand Trunk, and the troops traveled by rail to forts across the Canadas. Later arriving troop ships, though, were forced to dock at the maritime port of St. John's because of the frozen St. Lawrence. These troops were then obliged to make a heroic winter journey overland up to Rivière du Loup, and yes, the illogic of this fact was going to have lasting repercussions on the need for a Canadian maritime rail terminus, but we'll come to this later. The question on everyone's minds as the days of December moved forward to the deadline was, what would happen now? Did the Americans want war? By chance, the Canadian finance minister Alexander Galt was already in Washington when the crisis broke there to conduct trade negotiations related to the Reciprocity Treaty. He managed to arrange a meeting with the American President Abraham Lincoln on December 4th. Lincoln assured Galt that he needn't worry and that, as Lincoln put it, all would be got along with. But Galt couldn't be sure that Lincoln would carry his cabinet with him. In particular, there was the decidedly anti-British Secretary of State William Seward, who had frequently stoked up resentment against Britain and British North America in particular. When Galt asked why the Americans had ordered troop maneuvers near the Canadian border, Lincoln had told him that, well, we must say something to satisfy the people. It wasn't all reassuring. But on Christmas Day of 1861, one day before the British deadline was set to expire, the Boston jailers let their southern captives go free. The American government never did issue an apology, but they had at least backed down. Lincoln is reported to have said to the belligerent Seward and the rest of his cabinet, one war 
at a time. So what are we to make of all of this? It seems on the surface a good example of why some people see Canadian history as boring, because it's about a war that didn't happen. All peoples should be so lucky as to not fight wars. And certainly the Trent crisis was both a relief and a denouement, a letdown or a letting out of tension. But the Trent crisis mattered in a few ways. First, it woke up the British themselves to the danger of a possible American war. This was an adventure that almost no one in Britain wanted. So it strengthened the hands of those little Englanders who warned of the dangers and costs of empire. If war broke out, Britain would have been responsible for the safety of a far-flung and almost indefensible string of colonies right on the American border. A series of colonies which were supposed to be taking care of their own defense. After all, hadn't this been the promise of allowing them responsible government? So even though the cause of the Trent Affair had nothing to do with British North America, it was an American naval captain insulting the honor of the British Empire, nonetheless, the whole affair reinforced the idea that the British North American colonies were a dangerous holding, a possible source of unwanted conflict with the Americans. And as the Civil War continued on, and especially as some desperate Confederate supporters came to think that perhaps they could use British North America as a base from which to attack the North on its exposed flank, the feeling grew in Britain that it would be better to push the British North American colonies to unite and take care of their own defense. So that's legacy point number one. It changed minds in Britain. Secondly, there was this tricky matter of the frozen St. Lawrence and the winter trek of British troops overland to the railhead at Riviere de Loup. How was it possible that British North America did not even have an eastern terminus for its rail that was in British territory? Remember, the Grand Trunk eastern terminus was in Portland, Maine, in American territory. Now, so far I've been mostly ignoring the ongoing calls for an intercolonial railway, but we're getting to the point where this idea is going to matter. Because some of the biggest proponents of intercolonial union were also advocates for this intercolonial railway. And so yes, railway promoters. In the aftermath of the Trent Affair, a number of people began to think that something had to be done about this. Next, the Trent Affair also reminded British North Americans that, that they had better start taking this defense business seriously. Johnny MacDonald was now the minister of the militia, and he would immediately get to work, setting up a commission and then bringing forward an ambitious plan for colonial defense that would cause no end of headaches to the Cartier-MacDonald government. But perhaps the final words this week should go to the great orator of Canadian Confederation, Darcy McGee. For the Irish Catholic McGee, who so often found himself at the hard end of religious and sectional tensions in the country, was nonetheless an exponent of a, a unified idea of Canadians and British North Americans that would grow over the next few years. In the face of the American threat and in the midst of internal divisions, McGee expounded on what united Canadians. McGee called for a Canadian nationality, not French-Canadian, nor British-Canadian, nor Irish-Canadian. As McGee put it, quote, patriotism rejects the prefix. 
there is room enough in this country, he went on to say, for one great free people. But there is not room enough under the same flag and the same laws for two or three angry, suspicious, obstructive nationalities. McGee called on his people to keep down dissensions, which can only weaken, impoverish, and keep back the country to lift ourselves to the level of our destinies, to rise above all low limitations and narrow circumscriptions, to cultivate that true Catholicity of spirit which embraces all creeds, all classes, and all races in order to make of our boundless province so rich in known and unknown resources a great new northern nation. In some ways, the push for Canadian Confederation came for pragmatic reasons, to solve political and constitutional problems, and can seem more than a little prosaic. But McGee also offered a soaring, idealistic mission too, the quest to overcome difference through unity, to escape parochialism and sectionalism in a larger, collective British North American whole. Thanks for listening to this installment of 1867 and all that. Uh, If you like what you've heard, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends about the podcasts wherever and uh, however you choose. Next week, we return to Canada in the midst of an American civil war, where all of a sudden, the politics of war and defense have become paramount. And we will finally give that other John MacDonald his due. For this is when John Sandfield MacDonald gets to test out whether the idea of the double majority is more than just an idea and is instead a real and genuine solution to the Canadian dilemma. Here's more than a hint. It wasn't, and he didn't last long. 1867 and all that is created by me, Christopher Dummett. This year, it's also funded by you, as no doubt you're learning now from my continual commenting on this. For $5 a month, you can become an 1867 and all that patron, a real-life supporter of history in action. Uh, All the details about how to do this are uh, on our Patreon page, the link for which you can find in this week's show's notes. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.